a sermon that is part of a series of four sermons that we are doing on sort of the core things that drive us here at this church. And those are listed in your bulletin. Transcendent worship. We exist to worship God because God is worthy to be praised. And so we have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. And then last week, expository preaching, Pastor Leo preached on how we let God speak for himself through the text. Today, I want to talk about building community, and next week, we will have a sermon by Pastor Randy on making disciples. The discipleship that we, we have here within this body, within Grace Christian School, and then to the outer ends of the earth. I uh, was, want to turn you now to Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. But before we get there, I just, you know, I I was studying Romans uh, a couple years ago, and I spent a whole year just sort of reading and meditating in my quiet times on the book of Romans. It's a very challenging book, and I thought, you know, I need to go really slow through this because it takes me a while to get it. And after 11 chapters of some of the, you know, greatest compilation of theology in those first 11 chapters, we are told in chapter 12 to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. It's like the summation of everything we are to be and do. And and in some ways, when I've approached this text before in my own personal life trying to apply it, it's scary, it's bewildering, it's daunting. I mean, how does this happen? How does this work? And somehow so many Christians, and I used to think this way, think that it's something they have to do by themselves. God never designed us to do it that way. Or to live that way. In fact, it's virtually impossible to live in the body of Christ and, and do it alone. With any success or degree of increasing holiness, we were designed to do it together. So let's look at the first eight verses of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body... For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, excuse me, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes, In generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The first 11 chapters of Romans, as I mentioned, are all about theology, and the last five are all about application. Today, I want to focus on the body of Christ, of living in community. So many times, I'm pretty terrible (laughs) at community. And in fact, when I was growing up, I actually preferred being by myself than being with a bunch of 
people. But the reality is, is all of us fail at community at one level or another the way God has designed it. And so this morning, I don't want you or me to give up on what Christ has made us to be and to become. What he has called us to, who we actually are in Christ, how we actually will exist forever with him once we hit the new earth and the new heavens. It's stunning for me today and this week as I thought about it to realize that if you are a believer in Christ, you have a relationship, one relationship with someone who is perfect. <laughs> there are All of our other relationships are, are, are obviously flawed by sin. We are still being sanctified. And it's unbelievable that we have this relationship with God. So treasure that, first of all, in terms of your if you will, building community with him. He's perfect. God has designed it and gifted the body of Christ for us to grow in community more and more in the way that he is with us. Obviously, we are far from perfect because we are still being sanctified. And today, I want to challenge you to a wholehearted, God-exalting, Christ-sustained involvement in a biblically grounded small group, some kind of small group gathering here at Grace during this next year. Now, you can see there's nothing up on the screen because I'm old school and I learn, haven't learned how to do that yet. <laughs> so there is an outline in your bulletin, a hard copy, and so if, you get, if I get lost, you can follow and tell me where I'm at anyway. I often wonder if the typical American church experience is somewhat organically flawed. I wonder if the depth and the number of problems Christians face is because many of them do not experience relational, interpersonal, supernatural church life, corporate church life, the way the New Testament describes it. Marriage problems, parenting, identity, finances, career, addictions, loneliness. And I wonder if the epidemic is a symptom of a flaw in the way so many actually experience corporate church life. For many Christians, this life is a Sunday morning worship service, and that's all. A smaller percentage may add some kind of class, and classes are not bad at all. But there may not be much interpersonal ministry. I see in our classes here that we have a grace. There's a, there's a lot of interpersonal ministry. It's almost as if they are functioning, and they are, many of them, as really small groups within the church. But don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't think that I don't value what we're doing this morning incredibly. There's credible value to corporate worship and solid preaching and teaching. You get to be fed by spiritual chefs, you know. That's the way I look at it when I get to hear great preachers. I don't consider myself in that class. I get to do this once in a while. But sometimes it's milk, and sometimes it's steak, and other times maybe it feels like shredded wheat, but it's good for you, you know. But you just can't read the Bible in search of what the church life is supposed to be like our organic life together, and come away thinking that worship services and classes are the sum total of the Christian life. If we do, the result is that we make the people of God far too passive, 
and far too dependent on one or two pastors, or in this case, you have four here, and this relational passivity robs us of Christ's body-life remedies for so many problems. God has designed the church to function like a body with every member ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit and personal relationships. So let's unfold Romans 12. Because th- this passage has helped me, and that's why I went to it. I was, I was serving. There's hundreds of passages we could have gone to for community, but I, was, I came to this one because this one has helped me, and I have been in it. And you can see the outline. We are members of one organic whole. We must, we are to be living sacrifices. We must be humble. And we have been given gifts, supernatural gifts, to actually build the body. And I am going to jump right to verse 5 because verse 5 really helps us set the context for this whole passage. We are members of one organic whole. I'm going to jump back, first of all, just to back this up a bit. Back in Romans 8.1, Paul says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now here in Romans 12.5, we read, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And the link between these two texts is this massive little phrase, in Christ. So we have no condemnation in Christ, and then in Christ we are a body together. This is our identity, and it's really super important that you understand who you are if you are in Christ. In Christ, Paul says, in Romans 8, in Romans 12, in Galatians 3, our real identity is revealed. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. We're all one body in Christ. In Christ, we have a new identity, and it transcends everything that we once were individually. And that's why I wanted us to open worship this morning with reading 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. You can see the the group dynamic. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. And this concept is not so hard for us to understand here as American citizens because we are all Americans. But most of us, our ancestors, or perhaps you, came from another country, from countries all over the world. But now our identity is, I am an American. We are a group of united people, the United States. Well, at least this is the theory, right? (laughs) Our new, our new identity in Christ is infinitely more amazing because as Christ's body, body, our identity transcends culture, language, geography, ethnicity, gender, race, age, status, time, and actually our spiritual qualifications, right? None of us are qualified. So that identity that Christ gives us transcends all of those things and it has been stamped on us forever. In fact, it was chosen for you before the world began. That's that's amazing. When you walk through the airport next time, understand who you are. (laughs) 
In Revelation 5, the 24 elders fall down before Christ and declare, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. When I have meditated on this passage, I'm stunned because this is from every age from the beginning of the earth. What a diverse group of people we will gather with. The ethnic foods will be incredible. (laughs) Wow. So we need to get who we are and always will be. God has brought us all together to bring incredible glory to him. And here in Romans 12, 5, we read, Now we who are one body, now we who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What this means is that the church is like a human body with arms and legs and hands and feet and eyes and tongue and nose and cheek. And the church has a unity and diversity the way the human body is one with diverse limbs and organs. So we who are many are one body. And what is even more amazing is when we realize who we are, when we realize who we are, is that we're actually individually members of one another. The point is not merely that we have unity in our diversity, but amazing interconnectedness. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So what does this mean? Our unity is so much more than belonging to the same body. We each belong to every other member in the group. We are part of each other, individually, members of one another. You can look at it this way. My left hand, yeah, I get this right here, my right elbow, are not mere parts of the same body. This winter, if you slipped on the ice, or I did, and you came down on your elbow, your left hand would immediately come over and cradle it, immediately, instinctively, just as if the hand had felt the pain in the elbow. All the pain's right here, but the hand cares. The members of my body are like members of each other because they are so much part of each other's pain and pleasure. And my eyes saw a dirt clod hurtling at my head at 90 miles an hour, thrown at my head by my brother when I was 12, and he was a year younger but bigger. And we loved to have clod fights out on the farm when we were working, you know, because we just thought it was so much fun. And my back and my stomach muscles would contract and my head would duck in one motion, hoping to avoid the clod. None of these reactions were the result of a long chain of arguments or thinking why it would be good to help. (laughs) Oh, it's immediate. They feel the pain and pleasure that the other part feels or the impending danger. And the reaction is as if it happened to itself. So Romans 12 verse 5 teaches us two things. We who are many are one body in Christ, and we are individually members of one another. And now as we build community in this body, we help each other to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And as we get into that, I just want to remind us by review Faith is not, as you know, not just the obedience of belief in Christ. It's the obedience of living in Christ, to live. You and I are called to live as living sacrifices before God with each other. 
verse 1. Here we go. I appeal to you, brothers. Actually, if you note, that's in the plural. By the mercies, it can actually be translated brothers and sisters. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies, plural, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so faith is not only the obedience of believing here, it is the obedience of living. And individually, we have been supernaturally gifted. If you are a member in the body of Christ, you have been supernaturally gifted by God to help each other do this. We're going to get to this a little later. And so in Romans 12, we're moving from, from theology to application, from knowledge to faith, from theory to practice, from 11 chapters of how to think about Christ to five chapters of how to live in Christ. So if you're ever in the book and you're thinking, how does this book set up, that's, that's a help to you. In Romans 1, it's interesting, as I was looking at Romans, and Romans 1, Paul says, A servant, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, to bring about what? The obedience of faith. And then in Romans 16, when he gets done, he says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, he closes all of Romans 16 out with, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. It's called this living it out. I want you to be involved in the obedience of faith, of living it out. And that's why I titled the sermon, Glorifying God in Community, because the ultimate result is when we do this, we glorify God. So now let's look how to do this. Look again at verse 1. First, Paul says, I'm in this with you. We're in this together. I urge you. That's, I think that's ESV. Your translation may say, I beseech or I appeal. And the verb he uses here is parakleo. And the noun paraclete, which we're more familiar with, is used to describe the Holy Spirit who comforts us, exhorts us, comes alongside of us to help us. And Paul is saying here, I come alongside of you to help you. I beseech you by the mercies of God. And, and now he's asking you to remember all of these mercies of God. What are they? The God who chose us, the God who called us, the God who saved us, the God who sustains us, the God who will take us home. By these mercies in mind, to present your bodies, to peristomai yourselves to Christ, histomai, to make a stand, para, by the side of, to both make a stand before and to make a stand beside God. The meaning is profound. The tense of the word and the phrase implies that we must do this with our entire body, our entire being, joyfully, willingly, continually, as life. It's a lifestyle. Just as Christ's mercies, it's interesting, his lifestyle with us is to lavish mercies on us new every morning, right? Lamentations 3. Now, Paul doesn't say yield or surrender your bodies. He says present them. <laughs> if I grudgingly yield or surrender a gift to my wife, uh, that's not going to be good. She's not going to be happy. When I was 12, I presented my whole body, scrawny as it was, before Terry Braun, a godlike 28-year-old High Sierra hiking man, and walked with him into part of the wildest 17,000 square miles of California wilderness I had ever seen. But I had to present myself 
to follow him. And when you present yourself to Christ, you in essence are willing to follow him into the deepest valleys and to the highest peaks. I love how the psalmist puts it, but I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, David understood this kind of life and what it means to present yourself and to walk with God. And in Romans 12, we see that in Christ as a body, we are to be part of a body of believers in small groups like Frodo and Sam and Pippin and Gimli, each with differing gifts, serving each other, building each other up, willing each other on. As we take joy traveling together to mortify our sin in the mountains of Mordor, that's this fallen earth, dreaming of life someday in the rolling green hills of the Shire, heaven. I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, Old Testament, Believers were called to make a sacrifice from a dead one. You killed it. In the new covenant, we are called to be a sacrifice as a living one, to live for Christ. And that's why we're called priests. It's a clue. It starts to help you understand, how am I a priest? Well, I'm presenting myself. I am a priest. As priests, we present our bodies before Christ to engage with him in the daily killing of our sin. Yeah, and the daily living of obedience of faith. Romans 6, as I was studying this a while back, I, I realized that Romans 6, it says this, do, not, do you not know when you present, and I discovered it's the same word, so this expands the meaning. Do you not know when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey? either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in sanctification, this process of living and eternal life. And this is our logical and reasonable and rational worship, your spiritual worship, he says. Logic. It's logical. Your daily spiritual life, living it out this way. Sermons are never done. Last night, about 11.30, I was, I w my mind was thinking about the sermon, and I was thinking, man, think about the Old Testament sacrifices. So I took out a reference book, and I was looking at it, and this was just, you know, this was so helpful to me. You know, the Jews that Paul was talking to in that day in Rome, there may well have been some Orthodox Jews and some Greeks but they would have understood what was behind this kind of call for personal sacrifice because the Old Covenant predicted it. The Old Covenant, there were three groups of sacrifice. It's so interesting. There is a continuity between the Old Covenant and the New. There were three kinds of sacrifice, propitiatory, dedicatory, and communal. So the first category, and these are hard to say, propitiatory, were for sin and for guilt, for the atonement of sins. Then you had the dedicatory, and then you had the communal, which were, were for gratitude and fellowship. But it was these dedicatory offerings, and there were three of them, 
that were the pattern, the predictor of what was now being fulfilled in this new covenant and what Paul is calling us to. And those three offerings were the burnt offering, the cereal offering, and the drink offering. And these are beautiful visual pictures. You know, back there they got it because they had these visual pictures. So let me unfold this. They were required to make the burnt offering with with the sin offering. And the burnt offering was made right after it And it was indicating that you knew your sins had been atoned for by the first offering. In other words, you accepted the fact that they had been atoned for. You got it. It's been atoned for. That's what Paul is saying. When you come to Christ now, accept the fact your sins have been atoned for. Acknowledge that before him. He has made the sacrifice. That's a mindset. The cereal offering was simply then given after that. By the way, all these were given together at the same time. It was to give back to God a token of, of, of just thanks. And so you gave him fine grain and flour mixed with incense. Smells good. You give him something that you have that you produced from your crops. And then you gave him a drink offering. And this was wine, normally poured over all of the other offerings. And it was an offering made to please the Lord and an offering made every day. It was daily. Your desire to please God daily with your life. And it was, as I reflected on this, I, re- I remembered 2 Timothy 4, 6, where Paul says to Timothy near the end of his life, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering And the time of my departure has come. Again, he's using that imagery here of our daily lives are like drink offerings before God. Well, how do we present ourselves before and then come alongside of Christ to follow him, to walk with him? The first way is by learning, one of the first ways that were indicated here in the scriptures is to think like Christ thinks. I, always, I often pray, Lord, help me to think the way you think. You're the designer. Help me to think. To hike well, I had to learn how to think like Terry thought. <laughs> I'll never forget it. How to put my feet, how to control my body, how to use my legs, how to even use my thinking as I hiked. To hike well, to pace myself. So in Romans 12, 2, we are told that changed minds control changed bodies. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our increasingly presentable, if you will, living sacrifices to God of our bodies come from increasingly changed minds because our minds control our bodies. And if you do not intentionally resist being conformed to the worldviews of this age, you will be conformed. The word conformed here is in the passive tense. And it means if you don't resist, you will be conformed. But we're no longer in the collective like the Borg where resistance is futile. (laughs) We aren't. Resistance in Christ is never futile. That's why we call on his strength to help us resist. Change me, Father. Being conformed to this age means thinking like, and unless you, you and I have an ever-increasing worldview shaped by the word of God and the help of our fellow travelers. You know how much they help us to get it? 
It's amazing. We begin to lose ground and begin to think like the world. And this resisting, what I call the defensive battle, and learning to think rightly, the offensive battle, is one of the keys to becoming living sacrifices who are holy and acceptable to God. So I often do pray, and we should all pray, Lord, teach us how to think better, deeper, more fully about this subject, this topic, this area, this concern that we're on. In Jeremiah 9.24, God says, if you're going to boast, boast that you know and understand me. Pretty much kills our boasting at times, doesn't it? Because we're all still getting it. Our deep sin, sin patterns that haunt us always have their root in how we think. And I said our deep sin patterns. That's why deep repentance is like metamorphosis. From the inside out, the word transformed here, metamorphu, do not be conformed but be transformed. It often takes time and effort and learning and thinking and understanding to get it. I have this little game I play with myself. I call it the 18-month rule. It's like when I run into a problem where I'm struggling, I say, God, let's take 18 months and help me to get it. Metamorphosis takes perseverance, the proof and perfecting of our faith. The butterfly must struggle to get out of the cocoon to be metamorphosized. That you may prove what the will of God is. This is the testing process, applying the theory. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is not discovering God's will, it's confirming it to yourself. Proving to yourself that you know what the will of God is in a specific area by applying and testing it. And so we take the test of living life. And when I sin or you sin, it may well mean you really don't know God's will deep enough in that particular area. You have not thought deeply enough with him about it in the word and if that were just up to you to do by yourself, believe me, as I have thought, we'd be overwhelmed, right? Even when you are a mature Christian. It seems the more mature we get, the harder the tests become. It's just like you get AP tests, AP classes squared. The bodies begin to wear out. It's harder. And yet the joys are deeper. Class never ends. And perhaps you have never been part of an intimate, relational, biblical group in the body of Christ. And it doesn't matter how old or young you are in Christ. We need to help each other here to learn, to build each other up. We really need that. And for all of you who are married, here's the beauty of a biblical small group. Members in that group will be able to say things to you and your spouse you may not want to say to each other. <laughs> That's what I found out. Because they have spiritual gifts that each of you may not have. Perhaps bold exhortation mixed with grace that you really need. And often they exhort in ways that you don't even know you're being exhorted. Being married is not the full expression of the body of Christ. Do not put that on your spouse on your marriage. You've got to risk making some friends in the body of Christ who can help speak into your marriage. For this kind of genuine community, Paul tells us now in Romans 12, 3, that we must be humble. For 
by the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. And this little word for here, to just begin with that in verse 3, is how we know that verses 1 and 2 are connected to verses 4 through 8, and that the thrust of the entire passage is, though we are many, we are one body in Christ, and we are to help each other through proper use of our spiritual gifts to present ourselves as living sacrifices individually and corporately as a church or as small groups before Christ, pleasing to God. And as not yet fully sanctified people, our greatest danger is pride. To think too highly of ourselves, even with our supernatural gifts. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, and I have her quoted there, should have referenced her, said this, those who think too highly of themselves don't think enough. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. The process of transformed thinking is deep thinking, Thinking a lot is God's remedy to smash our pride and sanctify our minds so that we can wisely use our gifts within the body of Christ to actually help each other live honorably before the king of kings. We are to think with sober judgment. There's actually four thinking words in here, and one of those is a Greek word, and so it doesn't show up as a think in your translation. But we are to think with sober judgment because this always leads to humility. The essence of humility is a deepening recognition of who you are in Christ. The more you understand who Christ is, the more humble you will become. And Paul says, let's start at first base. Let's start at the basics. And he's very clear that he is an apostle only by God's grace. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, Paul did nothing to become an apostle. He was simply chosen by God's grace. He says to the Corinthians, By God's grace, I am what I am. And we should think the same way. We begin thinking rightly by understanding we are nothing but by God's grace. This is the foundation of humility. And then we are to think according to the measure of faith God has assigned. He's given us gifts and and a measure of faith to use it. And this is not referring to saving faith. And I like to think of it this way. Most architects have the gifts and skills to design houses and small commercial buildings. But only a few have the ability and the measure of faith to design 50-story high-rises. When I graduated from architecture school with a thousand other architects, I went, you know, I wouldn't even hire two-thirds of them to design my house. But I knew a couple of them who could probably have the skills, gifts, and abilities, and the faith to go out and design those 50-story high-rises. We must use our gifts in proportion to the measure of faith that God has given us. And we're told to think about this with him properly, purposefully, and soberly. And it really helps as well to think about that within a small group of friends, your body, because they will help you to understand what is how much measure of faith do you have to exercise your gift and now in verse 6 the gifts are listed and it begins with a description of how this incredible interconnectedness in the body 
as individually members of one another works. It's according to the grace given us, given to us. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, what flows from one member to another flows in the form of unique gifts that each of us have. Your giftedness will determine how you grace another member in the group. My hand serves my wounded elbow differently than the way my feet might serve my elbow. My feet are probably trucking me to first care. But my hand is holding the elbow. Or the way my head serves my elbow. My hand has different gifts than my feet and my head. And here Paul lists seven kinds of gifts. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. And you will find a wider range of gifts in, in other parts of the New Testament. And I could take time to exposit each one of these gifts and would be here all afternoon. And we won't do that. But I want to take now and summarize for you and give you an overview and just end. What's stunning about this list is that there's at least four of these virtues that are ones that all Christians should have and must have to be obedient Christians. Service, exhortation, giving, and mercy. And it is stunning to realize that when we are brought into the body of Christ, when we become a believer, that God has given us those abilities. And he calls us to use them. And so we begin to see that these gifts are not some kind of tidy little categories distinct from one another and possessed wholly by one person and not at all by another person. Rather, they're gifts of varying measures of grace that God has worked out in differing proportions in each of our lives. It was interesting that commentators on this passage identified what you and I may have at times experienced. Sometimes we're surprised when God dispenses grace through our gift in a way that is greater than what we even thought we could do simply because we're willing to use it. We're willing to get involved. We're willing to obey. Perhaps God pours out his grace in even greater measure for specific events and situations. It'd be like God to do that if we're just willing to obey him. God may grace you with an incredibly tender-hearted disposition to show mercy, or a great delight to be generous, or a bold but graceful ability and exhortation, or a servant's heart that sees needs and moves toward them, and I couldn't think of anything better than a mosquito like the sweet blood in the summer of Alaska. You know, boom, I'm there. This last week, Jeff called me and and he, and, he, and he exhorted me, and I was sharing. He says, you know, you've you got to be my hands and feet, Steve. You know, I'm out of here, and you got to step up here and do some things for me. And he says, I want you to exhort one of our leaders. And I said, whoa. And, and, and it's not that I don't enjoy doing that, but I said, I think he's going to be out of town. And, and uh, I walked into the gym the next day into here, and there he stood. I hadn't prepared. And yet, I know God has gifted me to exhort at times, and so I stepped up and simply God brought the words. Pretty amazing. You know, we could get puff, puffed up over that, but we're warned not to. Be humble. Just use your gift. 
The point is, these are the ways God channels us as individual members to bless each other. The grace of God comes down vertically, goes out horizontally through us. And not in seven ways, but in colors of grace mixed into a thousand kinds of usefulness and blessing. And in so many ways in this church, in a church of this size, I have come to believe this is basically pie-in-the-sky theory (laughs) without being in some kind of small group. Now, there's a great variety of those. Once a church is more than 30 or 40 people, interpersonal ministry falls off dramatically if there are no efforts to help people into smaller groups where all of this can become reality. We began small groups here at Grace in 1980, and we hit about 150 people. Janet were part of this church when it was about 60, but we hit 150, and at that point, we couldn't know everybody. It was getting harder and harder. And biblical small groups are not some kind of therapeutic method or psychological strategy or organizational technique or even a program or just a class. Now, we have many fine classes here, and many of those classes have deep interpersonal relationships in them. They are living expressions of the body of Christ. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reflecting back on the 40 years that I have spent in small groups. I've always been part of one in a church. I've been drawn to it. It's helped me so much. And I was reflecting how Janet and I became part of the first small group we attended in the 1970s. We were married in 1972. And we were going to a good-sized church as a young married couple. And at our first small group gathering with some other young couples, and that's often how it goes, right? You kind of cluster together with people who are sort of in that range, and that's perfectly okay. We went to this young couple's house, this small apartment, I'll never forget it. And we all sat on the floor because there weren't enough chairs. And we sat around in a circle on a green shag carpet and began to eat dinner together. We had dinner together, and then we shared, then we prayed. And I opened up my brand new ASV Bible, which I was pretty proud of, and I put it in front of me, you know, on my front of my cross legs, and there it sat. And they had a little dog, and this little dog went around, and it checked everybody out in the whole room, and he finally came to me. I was last. He looked up at me. He saw me, and he threw up in my Bible. <laughs> and, and everyone cheered. They were all so happy because it didn't get on the green shag carpet. <laughs> and why do I tell you this? Because biblical, organic, Real, small groups, or at times messy. They are transparent. People get to know each other. We bless each other. We exhort each other. We may get crosswise with each other. We, we lovingly confront each other, and perhaps sometimes not even knowing we're doing it in very real real. I'm losing it. Real ways. We confess. We grow. We pray. We share life. We help each other present ourselves to Christ. Last December, Dave and Carol Staus, and I was just talking to them last night. They're in Talkeetna enjoying the weather, so, you know, good for Dave and Carol, (laughs) who are part of our community group, called Janet and me and asked us to pray. And I'm thinking, hmm, 
but Dave had just been diagnosed with ARF, acute renal failure. So it was serious, very serious. And I'll never forget the tears the next Sunday in their eyes when they told me face to face the details of this news. It was stunning. And for the last six months, and he began immediately, Dave has been undergoing steroid and chemotherapies, and it has hammered his system. And for the first four months, his system was so hammered that he couldn't be around any people, including his small group of friends who love them so much. And a month ago, Carol called us and says, we have to get together with the group. We just have to get together. Forget the germs. Well, if you know Carol, she didn't quite say that. But we'll be as careful as we can. But we need to get together. We need your encouragement. We need your exhortations. I need your exhortation. And as a group, we went out for Mexican food and then spent an hour and a half at their house talking about the alphabet and eating dessert. A through Z. A through Z, all of the attributes of God that we could think of for every letter in the alphabet. Just to focus our minds on this God who is transcendent and personal, who ministers to us. And I saw two gifts on display that night that were amazing, exhortation and mercy. And I'm calling you by the mercies of God as a fellow traveler coming alongside of you to present your bodies as living sacrifices before your Lord together in some kind of small group at Grace this next year. We have lots of work to do. We know that. We need to equip more leaders for more groups. And we as your pastors are deeply committed and already working on that to add to the 10 or so groups we already have. So let's remember. We're members of one organic whole and individually members of each other. We are to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. This is the essence of living now before him. And we can become more humble by God's grace through transformed thinking as we think deeply over who he is and with him. And we have been graced by God with supernatural gifts to help each other do that. Father God, I do thank you because it always amazes me from your word when you begin to tell us the truth and you always tell us the truth. How you have revealed yourself and sometimes we wish we were like the disciples and we were face to face listening, sitting on the hillsides and having you explain it to us and yet you have given us this, you have told us by faith we can trust you and then you have given us each other, and you have given us the Holy Spirit. And Father, this next year, I would pray that you would strengthen this, your church, and strengthen us together, that we would truly be a body that builds community and brings glory to you, both individually and corporately, as we present ourselves to you. Lord, this is what you have called us to. This is what life is about. And we are trusting you by faith to work that out in our lives, to give us the, the energy, the, the desire to change our hearts, to help us to do that, to risk it. Thank you, Lord, so much for this day that we can walk with you, go with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. And I hope you have a glorious day out there in the sun. Enjoy the afternoon with your family and friends. Thank you. You're dismissed.